Well, we've got two weeks. This is an abbreviated uh, lecture series. Usually there are four weeks. We have two weeks to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And truly, we could spend 52 weeks talking about the Lord's Prayer. It is so rich. Um, rich not only in its biblical context, but also rich in the um, church historical context. It's been used in so many different ways, such rich ways. It has such a rich history. So we're not going to be able to touch on all of that, but we will hopefully... Um, with all of our appetites for further study of the Lord's Prayer and um, hopefully further praying of the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that has been prayed from the very earliest time. In the early centuries of the church it was prayed um, three times a day. So at the beginning of the day, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and then again in the evening. So this is, this is truly um, the Lord's Prayer and it is also um, the church's prayer. So... And we will have an occasion to pray it or recite it together um, at the end. But let's talk about it some first. Now let's see, first of all, if you actually can recite the Lord's Prayer. I suspect you can. So um, how does it go? Let's go line by line. We, we have to decide whether it's debts or trespasses. Or... We've got... So, well, I'm, I'm, you know that I'm leading you into a complete trap here. So just, just, just be aware, uh, yes. But that's okay. Um, I'm not leading you into temptation, but I am leading you into a trap. So, okay, the Lord's Prayer begins... Our Father, which art in heaven, or who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Thy will be done as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Our bread for tomorrow, give us today. And forgive us our debts or trespasses or something as we forgive those who trespass against us or our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, in this translation, and do not lead us into test. But deliver us from evil and the power and the glory forever and ever. Now, what version of the, where did this Lord's Prayer come from? As it's, we pretty much said what's up here with some differences, minor differences. Where would you find this particular version of the Lord's Prayer in Scripture? You're right, you wouldn't. You would find a pretty close version of this, pretty close to this version, actually in the Didache, chapter 8, verse 2. Anybody know what the Didache is? Second century document. Yeah, late first, um, early second century document. So it's very, very early in terms of Christian literature. And this is like something we have in Scripture, but it actually has something, has an additional part. Anybody know what the additional part that's found in the Didache that is not found in the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Really, Matthew or Luke. Yeah, it's the last verse. And you'll notice that last, or the last little phrase there. For yours is the power and the glory forever. You'll notice that actually leaves something out as well. Yeah, kingdom. Later on, um, the benediction, uh, the concluding part became, For yours is the power, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The Didache has yours is the power and the glory forever. But you won't find that concluding um, phrase there in... 
the Gospels, our Gospels. We say that time after time, but um, you won't find it. In fact, that really wasn't added on and spoken by the Western Church until the 17th, 16th, 17th century. It, was, it wasn't spoken. It was we, we, um, the Western Church, including the Roman Catholic and Protestant um, sides of the uh, Western Church, didn't even say that uh, part at the end. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So let's look at how this Lord's Prayer in the Didache, this early Christian Didache means teaching, this early Christian teaching at the end of the first century. Let's see how that compares with the scriptural versions. And I've already said it, but do you remember which two, uh, which two Gospels I said? Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. So it's not in Mark, it's not in John. Well, it's kind of in John. Um, that's tricky. But it's not in Mark. Um, it's in... Matthew. What's the difference between Matthew and the Didache? The big difference between the two. One's canon. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really big difference. Okay, One is canon, one is scripture, one is not. And what is the textual difference between the canon and non-canonical text? It's that concluding one, right? And there are a few other minor things. Do you, can you spot it? Anybody spot the uh, minor differences? May name. Well, it's above that, our Father who is in the heavens, the Didache has singular heaven. There's there's one difference. Um, maybe to match the singular heaven here. And there's a singular debt as opposed to debts. But they're not, they're not big differences. They're very small differences. But the big difference is the concluding, the concluding part there. For yours is the power and the glory. Or yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now what about Luke? Um, how different do you think Luke is? Well, why leave us in suspense? Oh, uh, oh before I get there. Oh, no, I'll go there. Here we go. Luke. There's Luke. And you can see that Luke actually leaves out some pretty, not just the end, but some other pretty important phrases as well. Uh, Matthew 6, um, has may your will come to pass as in um, heaven also on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke doesn't have that phrase. Uh, Matthew has rescue us from evil, deliver us from evil, or rescue us from the evil one. Luke doesn't have that phrase either. So there are some, there's some substantial differences between the two, and we have to ask ourselves, and we will in a moment, what might account for some of those differences? Taking them by themselves, though, for just a moment, let's go back to uh, the Matthew passage in Matthew 6. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's think about the structure of Matthew 6, the uh, Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. How is it organized? So, um, literary people, English people, people like Lois. Um, <laughs> if you're thinking about the structure here, how, how, do, how does it seem to be structured in Matthew 6 and largely in the Didache as well? And these, these could be, it could be content, could be grammatical structures. Um, any insights on the structure of Matthew 6? Sort of a praise and then follows into requests. 
Yeah. Well, let's see here. So, are you, what do you think about for the praise? May your name be hallowed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, here's your credential. You're the God in heaven. Here's, now I'm going to praise you, and then I'm going to ask for things. Right. Right. So, these... Um, these are very much spoken to God, right? I mean, well, all of them are spoken to God, but it's with reference to God's name and God's kingdom and God's will. So it's asking about things that have to do with God, right? May your kingdom, your name, your will. So the address really is is a kind of um, directed at God. Yeah. Now I just seem like those first four are focused on God and the next four on our needs. Yes, right. Um, but it's just speculation. In a sense, they're pairs. Our Father is in heaven, may your name be hallowed. And then your kingdom come, your will be done. One of the kingdom is that he is king and people do his will. Right, right. And then give us our bread um, and forgive us our debts, the, the uh, physical need and the spiritual need. And then a further need for rescue and deliverance. So. Right. So you're saying that there seem to be. I think that's. I think that's found. So you've got a series of couplets. It seems. Yes. Yeah. A There's series a four, of four. Four. Yeah. So four by four. So. Yeah. Four couplets. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, that's. I think that's very much a, a very a very valid way. It pulls out something very interesting. These two definitely belong together. These certainly belong together, especially when you consider that Luke doesn't have may your will come to pass in heaven as on earth this seems to be an elaboration of that um, in Matthew so these belong together these are actually linked by and in, in Greek as in English and clearly these belong together so you've got some couplets other people uh, other people point to the fact that you've got three um, three thou or three you petitions something about you your name your kingdom your will and then three us petitions. Give us bread, forgive us our debts, do not lead us, do not rescue us. And there's some question there about whether this is three or four actually. Do you count one, two, three, four? Or do you count one, two, honoring the couplet notion and see this as one petition? But some people see it as a three and three. One, two, three, one, two, three. So a, a beginning address followed then by three you petitions and three us petitions. I would argue for a four four because the last four, as uh, John Dominic Crossan argues in his history of Jesus, that those four are uh, the kernel of Jesus' teaching and the part above was added uh, in later historical times. Well, certainly, you're saying four and four. Yeah, I mean, virtually everyone's going to see a pretty strong break right here for one reason or another. You know, there definitely seems to be a break, whether you're dividing this up into two and two and then a break, followed by two and two, or whether you've got one and three and then another three. Yeah, I think there's definitely a very strong break here. But I would argue very strongly for the four four because I need the bottom four. The bottom four, to me, fit into a very nice pattern of... uh, the, the bread has to do with the physical world. The debts have to do with the mental contractual world. Yeah. And yeah. being led into tests has to do with temptation of emotional issues, sexual issues. And then the evil one is the uh, soul 
question. So mm. I've got a nice, uh, quad, what's the word, quad, quad something, mm-hmm. or some uh, relating. Sort of quadratic, you yeah. know. Yeah, mm-hmm. formula. Since you asked a literary question, uh, further question, um, if, if they are couplets, and if the, in some cases the second is an elaboration of the first, that's a poetic device, at least in Hebrew. Does Parallelism. It, does that yeah. make it at all of, of tend toward the genre of poetry? That's something I never thought about. Well, there's certainly um, a liturgical. Okay. Rec- it's meant to be recitative and liturgical, and I think that's poetic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's bring in let's bring in Luke and think about what the differences might be. Well, this sums up first of all. Holden sums up uh, from the Anchor Bible Dictionary: the Lord's Prayer in its fuller form in Matthew and Didache, according to Holden, consists of an address. Three second-person petitions relating to the fulfillment of God's purpose. And three or four, depending on how you count it, first-person petitions relating to human needs. And then he says maybe line eight and line seven belong together. And we've already, we've already suggested that perhaps we have a whole series of, of couplets throughout. Okay, let's bring in Luke. If we look at Luke, how is it structured? Now, taking Luke on its own, without now, without now looking at Matthew or did I K, how is that structured? And then we'll have to ask ourselves why we've got two different versions of the Lord's Prayer. It changes things a little bit, doesn't it? The couplets don't work out as nicely. In fact, one could argue that in Matthew, um, you've got to move towards some couplets for whatever reason. Jesus is making that or someone else. We'll talk about that in a minute. But certainly, uh, you've got an elaboration in Matthew. But if you just take Luke by itself, what do we have here? If, if you think about you petitions and us petitions, you petitions and we petitions, how's the structure look then? There's an address, the Father address. Two, you petitions. May your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, right? Leaves out the third. Then you've got two, us petitions. Bread and forgiveness. Give us our bread, forgive us our sins. And then you've got the, um, the concluding, do not lead us into temptation or the test, depending on your translation there. But it's not a couplet in this case. It's just, in fact... It's just a singular thing that you got an address at the uh, at the top, and you've got a, a concluding um, petition um, that's that's single. And then between these between this kind of sandwich, you've got two and two. That's the way it seems to work in Luke. Any other insights on the structure of Luke? And there is that general movement in both of them from a focus on God's kingdom, God's will. Um, being done, God's name being hallowed, to um, human needs being met. So in both of them, you see that sort, that sort of uh, progression. All right, mull over that for a moment. Let's, let's uh, ask the next question, which is a very interesting question, perhaps a controversial question. How do we account for the difference? We've got one version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. We have another version in Matthew. 
Um, and as we'll see, we've got something like the Lord's Prayer in John. Um, but we'll bring that out in a moment. How do we account for the differences? Clearly there, both are canonical. Both are scriptural, so we have to affirm that right at the, right at the outset. Explanations. Yeah, Jessica. Well, generally, generally it's Mark. But did Luke come before Matthew? It's highly controversial, but usually, and this this is scholars, including evangelical scholars, I would say the vast majority of scholars today believe in what's called Mark and priority, that Mark was written first. And that both Matt, that both Matthew and Luke used Mark, because there are lots of lots of parallels between material and Matthew and Luke and Mark. So Matthew and Luke both used Mark as they were writing their gospels, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But then you've got all this material between Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. What do you do with that? And that's and, and, and people generally say that there's a document that they were also using in addition to Mark, which we no longer have, and that document is typically called Q from the German word for source. We don't have that. It's a hypothetical document, but it's a way of trying to account for the fact that we've got all this common material between Matthew and Luke that we have to do something with. Now, remember, I mean, we know that there's all this, these correspondences between Matthew and Luke and Mark. So the Holy Spirit is using this first century way of writing biographical material where you take something that someone else has done and then you use it and you write your own biography so we're just saying it looks like there was probably another source as well. Would you like a seat? You're welcome to grab a... A blue legacy. Anyone here? Oh, that's okay, no problem. See, John. Would it make sense, since Matthew was writing to a largely Jewish audience, it would make sense that... I mean, maybe that could account for some of the differences that, you know, are added. Yeah, let me bring that back in. Here we go. Whoops. Yeah, there. Okay. Yeah, and in fact, that's, that's, that's what some people suggest, is you have a kind of elaboration um, in Matthew, our Father who is in the heavens, not just Father, but our Father who, who is in the heavens. Um, and... The other sort of elaborations here is being a kind of just Jewish elaboration, sort of filling it out a bit. But you still have to ask. I mean, even even if it's, it's clearly an elaboration, but who did the elaboration? Are these two different versions that Jesus spoke at two different times, which is a possibility? So Jesus was, you know, he gave one version at one point, and then he gave another version at another point. Although, although you know. It, this isn't like the parables where you can see Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly saying the same parables to different crowds. This is private instruction for the disciples. This is a special gift for the disciples. So it seems more like a singular occurrence. But some people suggest that what we have here is just Jesus giving two different versions. What's another possibility? Yeah, that's something that's been explored at great length that um, 
there's a, there's a tight connection between what's happening in Matthew. In fact, we'll see this in a little while. What's happening in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer and themes that are developed in Matthew. It's very, very close. And, and uh, I'll show you how that works in just a little bit. Same thing is happening in Luke. So again, it's, it's that old literary principle that you interpret something in context. But then, did Jesus actually say what we have in Matthew? Or not? It sounds like the question evolves into, is Matthew an elaboration or is Luke a paring down? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Maybe Luke didn't have the same liturgical sensibilities. Yeah, yeah. Being a doctor. But but either way, either way, you're um, you're you're taking the words of Jesus and either elaborating them in an inspired manner. I mean, we're assuming here that we have inspired scripture, so you're either elaborating it in an inspired manner or you're paring it down in an inspired manner. And I think it's fair to say, look, um, the Gospels are inspired, but they're very interpretive at times. Sometimes Matthew will say, um, if, 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 if as earthly fathers you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give a good, good gifts to you? That's Matthew. How does Luke do it? Actually, it's in the same context as the Lord's Prayer. If you as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to you? Now, this is Luke... Elaborating, it seems, for us, just in case you missed it, the gift, the greatest gift that God can give to us is indeed the Holy Spirit. So what we have here, it seems, is an inspired elaboration of what Jesus said. I think that's probably a fair way to look at it, too, in in Luke and Matthew. Whichever way it goes, we have here canonical text. This is how God means us to understand what Jesus said. And they're both valid ways of understanding what Jesus said. Um, one one image that I've um, that I used in a class that I taught on Friday in the uh, New Testament class, we're talking about the, the uh, Gospels now, is that the the Gospels are like portraits, and each one we have four beautiful portraits of Jesus, and in a portrait, I mean, it better look like the person. If it doesn't look like the person, it's not a good portrait. But you have some artistic license to make that beautiful and sort of add details that are going to really get at the heart and the character of what that person is. Malcolm would know more about this than anybody else. So you see some special insight into that person and perhaps you're adding or perhaps even subtracting details in order to focus on what's really important. Um, So... There's a book that I love that has a subtitle, The Art of Biblical Narrative. But there's this artistic dimension that needs to be honored. And if you look at the Gospels, that seems to be what is happening. Now look, in some biblical scholarship, they'll argue that the Lord's Prayer doesn't even go back to Jesus at all. That it's completely a later creation of Matthew's church or Luke's church or whatever. That's sort of in, in put in the, in the, uh, in, on the map. In the, in the mouth of Jesus, that to me uh, would not be a good portrait, right? So, what you have here is something that's going back to something that Jesus taught, and yet there may be elaborations, there may be subtractions, in order to make particular points that God wants us to see, either in Matthew or in Luke. Okay. Questions, comments? Yeah, Bill. Bill. 
coming from sort of my background with this sort of thing, it seems a stretch to to represent as a direct quote something that isn't. And was that more palatable or allowable under the literary kind of yeah. ethics of the day when this was written yeah. so than it would have been now? Short answer, short answer is yes. Um, in fact, if you think about it, um, this is readily apparent. If you get a synopsis and you compare, uh, and that just sort of comparing columns, Matthew and Mark and Luke, you will see passages in Mark and Matthew and Luke that are word for word identical. Now, if one of us did that today, what would it be called? Plagiarism. And when I was in Nigeria, which is also a strongly oral culture, people were kicked out of the seminary for plagiarism. Which also in that culture wasn't considered to be an offense. In fact, you were honoring somebody by using their words. It was a way of, of honoring an authority. In our culture, it's dishonest. It's fraudulent. But clearly the Gospels do it. I mean, there's some sort of connection between Matthew and, Mar- uh, Matthew and Luke and Mark and some other sort of connection between Matthew and Luke. And we have to account for that. So, um, and then when we look at biographical stuff, Greco-Roman biographies in the first century, they're doing the same sort of thing. You have an artistic literary shaping. And a point that I made on Friday to the class that I'm teaching is this. Look, we believe in a sovereign God, and he looks through all of human history with all of the various versions of, bio- of the biographical genre. So they did, bi- they did biographies a certain way in the first century. We do biographies in a very different way today. Just like we do lots of other things in very different ways. God didn't choose 21st century, the 21st century and our biographical genre to reveal himself. Out of all of history, he chose the 1st century. So we are well advised to see how the 1st century biographers actually did their thing. Just like we'd be well advised to see how did an, how did, how did an apocalyptic writer write an apocalypse? How does a biographer write in a biography? Not today, but back then. What were the conventions then? Because God is accommodating himself to those particular conventions. Just like he has to reveal himself in Koine Greek in the first century, or Aramaic or Hebrew in the Old Testament. He also accommodates himself to particular conventions. And this, I think, is one of those. So you see these sorts of differences, and you're like, well, that's interesting, not what I expected, especially as a 20th century, 21st century person. But God apparently feels comfortable with it. Nothing, he's not hiding anything. All four Gospels are canonical. Presumably we're meant to sort of line them up, compare them, and draw some conclusions. So, anyway, um, this is what we have in Matthew and in Luke. And we'll, we'll sort of go along and I'll show you some connections between, say, Matthew and the rest of Matthew as we go along, too. Other questions, comments? new to me about the bread for the morrow and I see you have a question mark but it's a different translation than give us this day our daily bread well there, I, I will I will. Um, mostly next week it's, it's a big controversy over a particular Greek word that is only found in the Lord's Prayer maybe they coined it for the occasion but if they did it leads to all sorts of questions it's epiousios and we're like what in the world does epiousios mean and I'll explain it what I'm going to do this, what I'm going to do this week is pretty much run us through the first half of the Lord's Prayer down to here I'm basically going to do all the you petitions 
this week, and the next week I'll do all of the us petitions. So that's that's what we're doing. So I will definitely cover that. It's it's why I've got the big uh, question mark there. And there's also we need to talk about debtors and trespasses and all that sort of thing too. Yeah, George. I don't know. The question that comes up when I look at it is in the context. The prayer seems to be corporate, but it says go into your room privately and pray. So and and there's other things that suggest that. It's private, but it's also corporate. How do you get into this? Or are you, been, are you saving this for later? Um, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the, the whole business of going into your room, I mean, uh, Jeremias has a really good suggestion on this. He, he suggests that what the, uh, what the Pharisees were trying to do is arrange it so that when the 3 o'clock... Um, temple horn was sounded and everybody's supposed to do prayer right at that moment they're arranging it so that they're in the marketplace so they can do it sort of and let everybody see it and you say okay stop the ostentatious you know making sure that everybody can see you when it just you just happen to be in the marketplace at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and he's saying he's talking to his disciples yeah not to a yeah. Yeah. So you can, but you can still pray. You can pray individually and still pray in concert with the larger people of God. In other words, you're not just praying for myself. I'm praying to our Father, as speaking as a member of the church, addressing God as one of many within the church. And you know, we we use the the our Father all the time, um, individually. But we're we're not just invoking Him as my Father, but the father of the entire church. That's what I would take it to be. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about since we just uh, you just mentioned um, that the our father. Let's let's talk about the um, the first line here in both prayers, although it's elaborated in Matthew with um, the heavens part, and talk about what this means. A very famous book on the Lord's Prayer that's had a big influence. Um, not all of it's being, been accepted today, but it's still been hugely influential. Is a book by Joachim Jeremias, the um, the Prayers of Jesus, which is still very much worth reading today. And I'd like to talk about his perspective on it and some things I think we can really learn from, and some things that are pretty current in teachings about calling um, God the Father, which we we need to be careful um, about as well. So we we'll get both the good and the bad here. Uh, Jeremiah says, if one realizes that the Lord's Prayer in fact represents a brief summary of the central elements of Jesus' preaching. Well, let's realize that for just a moment. Um, That's an amazing assertion. That we have here in the Lord's Prayer a summary of Jesus' main points in his preaching. Now, when I teach my New Testament course, I focus on the voice from heaven, uh, which says you, that you are, my, you are my, um, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I focus on Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And I focus on John's proclamation of Jesus. Now, if Jeremias is right, I need to add to that. So now it will last three weeks instead of two. Um, I need to add to that the Lord's Prayer is a window into the essential preaching of Jesus, a kind of summary of what was really important to Jesus. So what we may have here, if Jeremias is right, what we may have here in these two weeks is a window into the gospel, a window into the essential proclamation of Jesus, a kind of summary of what's really important. Well, we'll see if that's true. 
If one realizes, as Jeremias claims, that the Lord's Prayer in fact represents a brief summary of the central elements of Jesus' preaching, it is possible to conclude that the giving of the Lord's Prayer to the disciples authorized them to say Abba, just as Jesus did. Okay, hold up. What's Abba mean? What language? Yes, it means Father. Uh, What language is Abba from? Aramaic. And why Aramaic? Why not Hebrew? Or for that matter, why not Greek? Why, why do we have a word um, suddenly uh, in this paragraph in some places in the, in the New Testament as well that's Aramaic? What is that? It's the language that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken. Yes, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the actual everyday language that was spoken was Aramaic because that was the language of the Persian Empire. So it's, it persisted. It's related to Hebrew, but it's not, it's not Hebrew. So Jesus and his disciples would have been speaking Aramaic, would have read the Torah in Hebrew, would have understood Greek because that was the empire language of um, you know Alexander the Great and his successors. So we're talking about a kind of polyglot society, lots of different languages. Yeah. Uh, I'm just realizing that Amen is not up there, and because I was saying, hmm, Father, if you had a word that opened that had esoteric magic whatever connotations to the listener and the speaker, then the, the opening and the closing should have an opening word that opened that magic and it end with a word that closed the magic. Now, now clarify what how, you... How did Amen get lost out of the Lord's Prayer? Because everybody uses it and now we translate it or we carry it over to every other prayer that we say in the Christian tradition. Yeah, tell me what you mean, tell me what you mean by magic. Well, magic is a catch-all term for something that uh, is beyond physical sensory validation. So certainly all of Jesus' deeds that were recorded would have to fall into the realm of miracle. Hmm. Miracle is a more acceptable word to our culture than the word magic. So magic is, is a bad word that is used in Christian circles to denigrate something they don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And, and so every culture has its good words and its bad words for things that it likes and doesn't like. So what happened, coming back to the key thing, wasn't that closed with amen in each case? In every prayer? Well, it is true that when Jews prayed, in fact, you'll find this still in places like Africa, every time you finish a sentence, people will say amen. Um and it may well have been the case here, although it's not surprising. You, you don't find it in the text itself. I mean, even the benediction at the end, there's no, you know, if they were actually praying this, they wouldn't have stopped either here or here. There would have been some sort of benediction. They would have concluded it. It's too abrupt. And so you don't have everything in the text that even would have been expected to be prayed. But um, returning to the magic, I'm going to make a distinction here, which is not a distinction um, that you were thinking of, but... Um, and, and there's a certain importance to the distinction, which is um, there are miracles, and the Lord's Prayer actually had, I mean, it was, it was a gift to the church and certainly had uh, spiritual power. But um, I'm going to argue that the Lord's Prayer represents not so much magic as an inbreaking of God's kingdom. And here's the, here's the distinction. Jesus went around doing miracles. So he might touch a leper and heal the leper. 
He might touch somebody who's blind and, and uh, give them sight. He might, he might touch somebody who's lame and suddenly they can walk. What is the difference between that and what I would call magic, which would be um, something like, I'm going to make this book float up in the air. Or I'm going to... And you find this actually in some of some apocryphal gospels early on, 1st, 2nd century, where you'll have Jesus just doing random stuff like, well, here's some clay pigeons. I'm going to make them into real pigeons. I'm making some clay pigeons. They turn into clay pigeons. Well, uh, into real pigeons. Well, that was impressive. Now, what's the difference between what I would call magic, using a more um, sort of narrower definition, what's the difference between that sort of exhibition of power Turning clay pigeons into real pigeons, causing something to levitate, um, turning into a dog and then turning back into a human being. What's the difference between that sort of thing and what happens in Jesus' miracles? And this actually is directly um, related to the Lord's Prayer, as we'll see in a minute. What's, what's the difference between that and what Jesus was doing in his, his miracles? What's that? Benevolence, yeah, and here's the, here's the point. That, yeah, it's benevolence, it's directed for good of human beings and for human flourishing. And, and, and I think actually this is, the, this is really the point of the Lord's Prayer. It's all about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So usually when we use, when we use the word magic, and, and you're exactly right, it has a very pejorative connotation in our, in our culture and particularly in certain circles. Usually when we use magic, it's a, it's a kind of arbitrary suspension of, natural, of some sort of natural law, right? Usually this happens because I'm, I'm going to make something else happen. And so it becomes a kind of breaking of God's laws. And, 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 and seen in that way, it's really inexplicable why God would make a bunch of laws and then have Jesus come and break them all. I mean, why, why, why does Jesus get to break them? And if you understood it as magic, it could be sort of, it could have that sort of arbitrary character to it. But what Jesus is doing is actually saying, this is what God intended the world to be like. He intended for people to be fed. He intended for people to see. He intended for people to walk. He intended for people to be forgiven. All of those things are characteristics of the future age, which is breaking in right now. So, you know, the title of this uh, lecture is The King and His Kingdom. As we'll see in a minute, the Lord's Prayer is all about the future kingdom of God breaking in in the present, indeed in a miraculous way. But it's in a way that's in concert with what God always intended. And that's why, that's why I'm, just, um, I'm careful with the use of the word magic, because sometimes that could be any display of miraculous power. Whereas I think that the displays of Jesus' miraculous power were very, very... Well, they were carefully chosen because they were signs. They were pointers. They were sort of flags pointing in a particular direction toward the future. This is what the future looks like already. And in fact, I think that's what's happening here. Even in the larger structure of uh, the Lord's Prayer, you've got a request for the kingdom to come, and then how that's going to look at in the present. What are the advanced tokens? What are the advanced signs of that kingdom breaking in? Um, 
and perhaps even miraculous signs because this might be something even sacramental this might even be a reference to the Eucharist we'll talk about that next week so there might even be these, these miraculous inbreakings of God's presence anticipating his work in the future okay, enough of that yeah, sure thanks for the question um, so it is possible to conclude that the giving of the Lord's Prayer to the disciples authorized them to say Abba to refer to God as Father, just as Jesus did. In this way, Jesus gave them a share in his relationship with God. So Jesus, when he's, in every case, when Jesus prays in the New Testament, with one exception when he's on the cross, and there he's quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time Jesus refers to God as Father, which is actually pretty unusual for that time period. didn't happen very much. Jesus addresses God as Father, all of the time. And we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus do that to begin with? I think there's an answer to that. And then what does it mean for his disciples to be allowed to do the same thing? It's pretty amazing. What, so that when we call God Father, which we do rather blithely these days because we're so used to it, what does it mean for us to call God Father? What does it mean to share in Jesus' relationship with his Father? That's the question that we want to answer now. First of all, to clear a potential misunderstanding, Jeremias also says in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. Again, Aramaic for Father. He gives them a share in his sonship and empowers them as his disciples to speak with their Heavenly Father in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child would with his father. And actually, I agree with virtually all of that. It's just that sometimes that particular insight from Jeremias has been taken too far. I know somebody here knows what the typical translation of Abba is. What is it? Daddy. Exactly. And, and there's, some, there's, there's a reason for that. Because little kids, you know, if you've had little babies, what do they say? They say, Dad, 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 and that's where Daddy came from. It's, it's, uh, it's imitative language. And Mama is the same way. Mama, Mama, it's the same way. And that's what you have in Abba. It's, it's, it originally came from young children babbling, Abba, uh, ba 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 It was a reference to Father. Um, and so a lot of people have come to say that when you refer to God, um, God as Abba, you're basically saying Daddy. Um... That particular point has long since been sort of, uh, well, let's put it this way. That's an overstatement. Because in the first century, adults used Abba too. It wasn't just little kids. In some places in the South, you hear adults referring to their father as daddy. So, I mean, that actually happens in our country too. Maybe it happens in other parts of the um, country. But I'm from the South, and I know there are some people who still refer to their father as daddy when they're 40 years old. So it happens. But it doesn't happen in a lot of places. A lot of times, daddy is something that's exclusively a little kid sort of thing, a way of referring to their father. And that just wasn't the case for Abba in the first century. Adults used Abba as well. So, uh, is it an intimate term? Yes. Is it a familiar term? Absolutely. Very familiar term. Would it have seemed strange to Jewish ears to apply this to God? Yes. Um, but it, does it mean daddy in a way that just a, a little child would say it? Well, that's going a little too far. Daddy is a little too much. There's a famous article on that basically saying Abba isn't daddy. 
um, saying that that particular translation really takes it too far in the direction of little kid language because it was used by adults back then. Um, yep. Maybe you're going over going back to what you have up there, Jeremiah's. Um, I'm having trouble in that it feels to me like it mixes categories. The definition of prayer and the definition of proclamation. They didn't say, Jesus, give us a summary. Tell us what your main teaching is. They said, how shall we pray? And so I have trouble with saying that prayer authorizes something. A proclamation authorizes something, but I don't see how prayer Well, it's, it's, the, the idea would be this, that Jesus himself was addressing God as Father and as Abba in a way that would have seemed very strange to Jewish ears and which, which might well have seemed to be sort of his prerogative and his right because he was the one, the voice from heaven said at his baptism, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. It might, be, it might well be concluded that Jesus alone could address Father, um, God in such a familiar paternal way. And yet then Jesus goes to his disciples and says, this is the prayer I want you to pray, and obviously it means that I want you to address God in this way as well, not just as Almighty God, Lord of the earth, King, typical phrases. I want you to address God as Abba now as well. And you see that address, that's important enough that you see it coming out in places like Galatians 4 and Romans 8, where Paul speaks of we've been given the Spirit and so we cry Abba Father. He says that twice. And he actually uses the Aramaic word, although he's writing in, um, in, in Greek. Abba Pater. So this was very important to the early Christians. It was like a birthright. We, we, we actually are now allowed to call um, God Abba, not Daddy. That's a, little, that's a little too childish. But we are allowed to use this familiar term for God that's, that's not generally used. And so they're being brought into that. Now, we still have to ask ourselves, what exactly were they being brought into? Because we know that when we say Son of God, a lot of times we're referring to the divinity of Jesus. So were they brought into his divinity? You know, were they also members of the Trinity? No, God forbid. So we need to talk a little bit about what Jesus meant when he actually allowed them to call God, to call God their Father just as he did. And, and Jeremias, I think, gets the, the crucial point here. And this quote, for them, that is for Jesus' disciples, the privilege of repeating Jesus' Abba amounted to an anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise. And this is the point I was making a few moments ago. That future hope, the very content of Jesus' proclamation, is breaking in. And that promise was, as we see it in Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters. Now, by itself, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but um, anybody know the Old Testament background to I will be your father, or even more strictly, yeah, I will be, I will be his father and he will be my son. It is adoption language, and, and anybody know where that adoption language is found in the Old Testament? I will be his father and he will be my son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Anybody know this? Yeah, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that's Psalm 2. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's Second Samuel 7. In the Old Testament, that's kingship language. Let me show you, let me show you how that works. I'm 
Okay, I will be your father. And actually, well, I'll look at Isaiah 43 later maybe. Um, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters. This is closely connected before I get to the... uh, Second Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. This is closely connected to this edition here. Yours is the power and the glory forever. And there's the kingdom language right there. Okay. Um, in First Chronicles 29 it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So this conclusion to the Lord's Prayer, even though it was added on later, is um, already evoking 1 Chronicles 29, which is David speaking of God. Yours is the kingdom, O God. That is connected to this sonship language, as I was just saying, and this is the point. There's 2 Samuel 7, there's Psalm 2, let me look at both of them. Um... Pay close attention here because this language is so important for the New Testament. You will turn, you will run into it at every turn, not least the Lord's Prayer. So this is um, very important Old Testament language picked up on in very important ways by the early Christians and, and Jesus himself. 2 Samuel 7. This is um, Nathan the prophet speaking to David and he's giving him a word from the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. There's that. I will be your father there. I will be your father I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now, this is what I want you to do. In your minds, I want you to put together these words. Kingdom, father, and son. Do you see that they're all in 2 Samuel 7 there? David's heir was going to be the son of God. And here it's speaking of Solomon. I mean, ultimately it's fulfilled in Christ, but here it's speaking of Solomon because it refers to him committing iniquity. Uh, which would not be appropriate of uh, Jesus. So, in, 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 in the Old Testament, the Son of God is the heir of God who gets the inheritance, and he is the king. So, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. I will be to the king a father, and he shall be to me a son. Same sort of thing is happening in Psalm 2. This is the king speaking in Psalm 2. Um, Well, in verse 6, it's God himself speaking. As for me, that is God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So there's the king language. Now the king speaks. I, the king, will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. And all the Jewish people are thinking, oh, that's like Second Samuel 7. The king is the son of God. He's got the inheritance. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So what you need to understand is that son and father and kingdom belong together. The father gives the Davidic heir, his son, the kingdom. 
the Father gives his Son the kingdom. And it's a human Son, it's a human kingdom. Jesus is divine too, but that's not the point here. So that when God says to Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, at the baptism, you are my beloved Son, how is that going to be understood? By Jesus or anyone else? Oh, well, I'm the king. I'm the king who fulfills 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I'm the son who fulfills Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here's the point. When Jesus hears those words from heaven, those words tell him that he is the son of God. Understood in the Old Testament sense. Now it goes deeper than that for Jesus, but in the Old Testament sense it means you are my king. The kingdom belongs to you. So what does Jesus do? He begins addressing God as his father. I am the son. I will now address God as my father. And when he gives the disciples permission to do the same, he's basically saying the kingdom belongs to you too. I'm bringing in the kingdom, but the kingdom belongs to you. It will be given to you. You also are heirs and sons and daughters of God. Understood in the Old Testament sense. Not divine, but you get the inheritance just like I do. That's the idea. So I think Jeremias is really on to something here. Jesus takes his own status as the son, the one who's going to get the inheritance, the one who's going to get the, the kingdom, and then by giving the prayer to the disciples says, you can address God as the Father too, and that means you can pray for the kingdom to come. For you. And of course Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom. And that explains why we've got all this kingdom language. Our Father who is in heaven, may your kingdom come. And it it explains also why it's so appropriate to have this particular conclusion. It's not in Scripture, but boy, is it ever the perfect conclusion. For yours is the power and the glory, and well, the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. I think I got that out of order. It's perfect. Kingdom goes together with this kingdom, goes together with the Father who is addressed as the Father and Abba by his sons and daughters, just as Jesus was addressed as the Son. Okay, did I overwhelm you there? Does that make sense? To be, to be brought into a sonship, to be called sons and daughters of God, is to be heirs of the kingdom. Jesus gets the kingdom, but we do too. And that's, that's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. I said a moment ago that the Lord's Prayer, well, Jeremiah said it, the Lord's Prayer summarizes key elements of Jesus' teaching. Well, what did Jesus go around teaching and preaching? The presence of the kingdom. The presence of the kingdom. That's what Jesus' preaching was all about. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived in a surprising way, in, in me and in my ministry. The kingdom that you were hoping for to come in its completeness and consummation has already arrived. And he's bringing the disciples into that. You too can call God your father. You too are sons and daughters who can expect the full inheritance of the kingdom. And you too need to be anticipating that in the present, even in the way that you pray. I think that's the secret to understanding um, the Lord's Prayer and the way that Jesus and his disciples will have.
So Father and Kingdom belong together. Jesus as the Son invites His disciples to also understand themselves as sons and daughters addressing their their, their God in this intimate um, way as their Abba, and as their Father. Yes? From, from this introduction, we, we can conclude reasonably that you've looked through all the explanations of the Lord's Prayer. And this particular track is the oh I'm sure that I have not looked through all the explanations of the Lord's Prayer but um, I will say this there are many many different explanations and some of them will depart from this clearly one thing that's emerged in the last really 100 years of biblical scholarship and and really that's the direction I'm coming from that's my training that's my uh, bent Uh, something that's that's really come out in biblical um, scholarship is um Okay, here's a $10 word. The eschatological nature of the teaching of Jesus. Now, what does the word eschatological mean? End times. End times. And here's the surprising thing. Usually when we think of end times, we think of something that's way in the future. Um, And the surprising nature of Jesus' teaching was, the future has arrived. The future has arrived in me. Do you have eyes to see it? Do you have the eyes of faith to see the way in which the kingdom is already manifest in my teaching and in my actions? And I think it's fair to say on, on across the board in biblical scholarship from, and well, again, there are always people who are going to disagree, but it's very, very widely represented from liberals to conservatives that this seems to get at what Jesus was all about, that he understood himself to be the vanguard of the kingdom of God. And so this kind, this, this, this kind of um, understanding pervades our understanding of the parables, understands our, uh, uh, pervades our understand, uh, understanding of the miracles, again, as advanced tokens of the coming kingdom. And indeed, it's going to completely characterize my teaching on the Lord's Prayer because I'm convinced this is exactly what Jesus and his disciples were announcing in the gospel. The kingdom of God has come. It will come in its fullness, as it turned out. It will come in its fullness at the second advent when Christ returns. Resurrection bodies, new creation. But it has already arrived in a very real way in Jesus. Do you have the eyes to see it? And um, so that's the particular perspective that I'm going to go. Now, did, did understandings of the Lord's Prayer develop and change over the years? They certainly did. But I think that historically, that is, in terms of the first century, this makes the best sense of the Gospels, makes the best sense of Paul's teaching, which is even earlier than the Gospels in terms of dating, makes the best sense of New Testament theology. So it's, it's the tack I'm taking. You're yeah. not necessarily saying that the world is going to be fine and better and have approached the kingdom in, in terms of its physical beliefs of people when Jesus arrives, or are you just saying that the world might be, be worse, but the kingdom is arriving with Christ? Well, uh, well, the brief answer to that, which is kind of hard to do, but the brief answer to that would be that even in his ministry, as he goes around speaking um, and also acting with his, with his miracles, so both in parables and in miracles, you have little signs, little pointers to the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. So when he tells a parable about you know, a seed becoming a full harvest, that's a way of saying you were expecting the full harvest to come right away. Actually, it's coming like a seed. Can you see the mustard seed? 
Do you have faith like a mustard seed to see the mustard seed of the kingdom? Okay, so his teaching was oriented toward kingdom explanations, but his miracles were also intended as anticipations of the kingdom. So his ministry itself was trying to show and to tell the kingdom. Then he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and that became the arrival of the kingdom in Jesus. So that uh, when, when the evangelist, when Jesus says in the Gospels, um, some of you will not die before you see the Son of Man coming in his glory, um, or appearing in glory, it points to the way in which the, the evangelists, that is the Gospel writers, really did understand the resurrection of Jesus as itself the arrival of the kingdom in the person of Jesus. And, and indeed, there's good evidence that the apostles, like Paul, understood the same way. Jesus is the glorified human king sitting on the Davidic throne. Going back to the Davidic stuff. He is the human king. The kingdom has arrived in him. He has been raised from the dead and glorified. Now, if you believe in him, and if you believe in his resurrection... That means that you buy into that story. That means that you buy into that vision of the future. That means that you believe that what happened to him can also happen to you. That his resurrection can also become your resurrection. That his inheritance of the kingdom can also become your inheritance of the kingdom. You are buying into that story. You're buying into that vision of the future. And so, um, so I think that's... That's the, nature, that's the nature of the gospel. And, and, and what you see then, both in his ministry then and in, then in his death and resurrection, is, um, is that kingdom message. What I'm kind of asking about is oh, okay. there's a lot of scripture that talks about things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the kingdom, expanding kingdom, suggests that it's not. So is the kingdom oh, oh, oh. a single kind of a kingdom, or is it, the, is, is it God being in people? George, this is a really helpful clarification, because um, when we talk about becoming like the Son, okay, so we're invited into this intimate communion with the Father as the Son is. That means that we get the inheritance. What a lot of people want to do, and this is really prevalent today, but hey, it was prevalent in the first century too. What a lot of people want to do is say, hey, that's cool. I get the inheritance of the Son, and Jesus can handle the suffering part. 